Hi, this is John Ankerberg, and today I want to present to you my very, very good friend, Dr. Wayne Barber. For 18 years, he was pastor of the huge Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee. He was co-teacher with Kay Arthur for 14 years at Precept Ministries. He studied with Dr. Spiro Zodiades and co-hosted with him the national radio and TV program, New Testament Light, for 10 years. Wayne has taught the message of living grace which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, all around the world. He is president, founder, and principal speaker of Living Grace Ministries. And in February of 2011, he returned to Woodland Park Baptist Church in Chattanooga, Tennessee, as senior pastor. Wayne's authored several books. The most recent one is entitled, Living Grace, Letting Jesus Be Jesus in You. And he has also co-authored, The Following God, series of studies published by AMG. I hope that you'll enjoy listening to Dr. Wayne Barber. Would you turn with me this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 4. That's a new sound. We've been in chapter 3 for a while. 1 Corinthians chapter 4. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 5 today. We want to talk about the marks of a God-called preacher. The marks of a God-called called preacher. Preachers and how people think about them has very much been on Paul's mind for the last three chapters that we've been studying together. The Corinthian believers were babes in Christ in the sense that they were intentionally immature. They refused to grow up. They would not walk by faith. They would not attach themselves to Christ and be vessels through which God could use. No, instead of doing that, there was jealousy and strife marked by the fact that they attached themselves to the preachers of that day. Paul, Apollos, Cephas, as we learned in chapter 1, verse 12, and he follows that line of thinking all the way through to where we are today. Instead of attaching themselves to Jesus, they attached themselves to preachers at the exclusion of others. I am of Paul, some would say. I am of Apollos. Well, I am of Cephas. Well, Paul wanted them to know that what they were doing, that they were robbing themselves. They were robbing themselves, first of all, of that which God wanted to do through them, and they were robbing themselves of the reward that they could have one day when they stood before him. And it's been very clear what he says. Why would you want the cow when you have the farm? (laughs) I mean, attach yourself to Christ. Don't attach yourself to the vessel. Attach yourself to the one the vessel's attached to. He affirms to them that they themselves are temples of God, as you you and I both studied in chapter 3. He lets them know, just like Paul was in a vessel at a temple, Apollos was where God lived, God the Holy Spirit. For some reason or another, they thought Christ was divided, that Paul got more than Apollos got and more than they got, and so therefore they had to attach themselves to a human being. And Paul was trying to say the same thing Peter says in one of his epistles. He says, to those who have received a like faith such as ours. I mean, I got the same thing Paul got, you did, all of us did. I mean, the ground's level. All of us got Jesus when we received him. His spirit came to live in our life. And that's what Paul wants them to see. Stand on your own two feet. Come out of the nursery and walk by faith and attach yourself to Christ. Well, he admonishes them in the last few verses we looked at in chapter 3 to become foolish so that they might become wise. In other words, become like a little child. Stop thinking you know anything and let God teach you. Let his word enrich your life. And he sums up two and a half chapters In one verse there, in verse 21 of chapter 3. And if you have any doubt 
that his context has been, don't you attach yourself to men and don't you boast in men, then look at verse 21. It's exactly what he says as he, as he comes down now to his main thought. He says, so then let no one boast in men. That's their problem. They were men-centered and not God-centered. And so he says, as he continues in verse 21, for all things belong to you. Now, oh, if our eyes could just be opened this morning, we could see what is ours in Jesus Christ. He says in chapter 1, you've been enriched in all things in him. And now he says, all things belong to you. Now, what in the world does he mean by that? Well, to understand that, you've got to look at verse 23, as we saw in our last message. This is just a little bit of review. You've got to realize this. In verse 23, the last phrase is the key to the whole thing. And the last phrase says, and Christ belongs to God. Now, the word belongs to is implied. It's not in the text. It's Christ. The literal would be, and Christ, God's. <laughs> now, he doesn't mean God's plural, but God's possessive. In other words, he belongs to God. He's God's. And it's no definite article used there. You say, thanks, Wayne. What does that mean? Well, a definite article identifies something, but when it's not there, it qualifies something. So he's talking not just about God. He's talking about the Godhead. No one person of the Godhead, the whole Godhead. And it says, in Christ belongs to the Godhead. He is God, is what he's saying. And I tell you, that's a beautiful thought. Had it not been for the fact that Christ is God, who came to this earth, born of a virgin, then God, he could not have brought God to man, nor could he have brought man to God. And so that's the whole thing, rest right on that one truth, that Christ is, belongs to God. He's a part of the Godhead. He's not mere man. He's the God-man as he came to this earth. And so therefore, we now can belong to him. He says, you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Now, you think about it for a second, the deductions begin to fall in place. If Christ is God, we know that he sustains all things and he created all things, so all things are his, right? If I belong to Christ, then in Christ, all things belong to me. You remember, we, we, we haven't gone back to Genesis much, but in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, the dominion that God gave to man, that man lost when he sinned, and we, we forget sometimes that that was reclaimed by the second Adam. It wasn't given back to man, it was given back to Christ the God-man. And in Him, all things belong and consist. And so therefore, if we belong to Him, all things belong to Him, then in Him, we become heir to all that is His. Now, the first thing you usually want to do is to sit down and make up a list. All right, if everything belongs to me, where do I start? I want to see what's on this list. Well, now relax. Paul has a list for you. And a matter of fact, you don't want to go anywhere else until you look at the list that he has. And the first thing he mentions here, he says, whether Paul... In verse 22, or Apollos, or Cephas. And what is he saying here? He's saying, listen, all the teachers and preachers that are, are gifts to the body. Now, I know sometimes you think I'm the booby prize, but they're gifts to the body. Now, he doesn't mean everybody who stands behind a pulpit is a gift because there are many teachers and preachers that do not honor the Word of God. That's our message this morning. Oh, no, 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 no. He's not talking about them. He's talking about those who are truly God-called. They're given to the body. Now listen, if you attach yourself to a preacher, if you attach yourself to a teacher as they had done, no one man has it all together. And what happens is you get off track somewhere. But all of them have been given and they're equal and you draw from whoever and that you might be equipped and encouraged. But remember, you are a temple of God and the true teacher, the Holy Spirit, lives in you. But all the teachers have been given to the body. So why attach yourself to one or why attach yourself 
to another. Well, he goes on to say the world belongs to us. Now, that's an interesting thought. The world belongs to us. Some people have jumped on that doctrine and said that means the materialistic world. We can have the physical and tangible things of this world. Is that what he's talking about? No way. In fact, it wasn't the Lord who brought the kingdoms of the world to the devil. It was the devil who brought the kingdoms of the world to Jesus and tempted him with them. You see, he has temporary domain over this world. We're just strangers down here passing through, looking for a city not made with human hands. So what is he saying then? How does the world belong to us? And I believe it's in the sense, it's in him, first of all, but it's in the sense that we comprehend something about this world that the world does not comprehend. Most of the people of this world see themselves as victims, but we do not. We know who's in control of it. We know that life does not work against us, that life works for us. And having this understanding of it and appreciation for it, in that sense the world belongs to us. You know, we can cast our vote when the presidents are nominated, etc. And, and if our candidate wins, that's wonderful. If he doesn't win, that's wonderful because God's still in control. And the book of Daniel clearly teaches us he raises up kings and he establishes kingdoms. And he's the one who takes kingdoms down. So we know God is in control. I shared with you the last message about my cows in the, in the pasture behind my house. <laughs> I own those cows. I don't feed them. I, don't eat, I didn't even pay for them. They're on somebody else's land, but I appreciate them. And they're mine. I walk out, come out there in the backyard, and son, I can talk to those cows. And it's just, you have to get their attention as I was sharing with you the last message. It's just that, and now you got to know how to do that. I didn't just do that. Now some of y'all think I'm acting silly. No, 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 that's practice. You've got to know their language. I don't know linguistics real well in human languages, but I understand cows. And every time I do that, they've got their back end stuck to me and everyone, they've got the funniest looking faces and they'll turn around and look around at me and I got their attention. And I stand out there in the backyard and I've heard dying in the kitchen saying, oh God, help me. What's wrong with the man I've married to? But I own those cows. I own those cows. You know why? Because I appreciate those cows and, under, and there's something about it. I don't have to pay for them. You see, the world belongs to those who understand who created it, who's in charge of it, who sustains it, and all things belong to us. He's not talking about materialistic anything. He's just simply saying that because we're in Christ and all things belong to Him, all things belong to us. He says life and death belongs to us in verse 22. How so? Somebody might say, well, Wayne, hold, hold, hold. I know a friend of mine that loved Jesus as much as anybody as any, has ever loved Jesus. And they died an untimely death. How can you say that, that, that life belongs to them? The word life is zoe. And zoe in scripture is never the length of life. It's never the busyness of life. It's the essence of life. And you see, the essence of life is the quality of life. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus only lived on this earth 33 years as, a, as the God-man before he was crucified? And yet the verse is written of him in John chapter 21 and verse 25. And it says, and there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Wow, what a life in 33 years. And that's what he's talking about. It's a quality of life. And to have that kind of quality of life, you've got to have the one who is that life. And Paul says in Philippians 1:21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then death, you say, how do I possess death? Oh, friend, you possess death. Because death is nothing more to a believer than a doorway into the presence of the Lord Jesus himself. That's all it is. Jesus shed a single tear when Lazarus died. 
You say, why did he do that? Because death was a piece of cake to him. Just from here to there. Bat your eye. But when he wept was when he looked over Jerusalem who had rejected him as being their Messiah. That's when he wept. We weep over the wrong things. Believers, we, all things belong to us and life and death belong to us. We understand who gives it and we understand who sustains it and we understand death because his scripture enlightens our minds. And verse 22 goes on to say things present or things to come, they belong to us. So how they belong to us. I think Ephesians 1.14 really qualifies that. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. He says the Holy Spirit is given as a pledge of our inheritance. And you know what a pledge is? It's the earnest money. Or not money in this sense, but the earnest of something. You know when you go to buy a house, you put earnest money down. And what does that mean? That means that's guaranteed full payments coming later on. And the Holy Spirit living in me right now is the guarantee that full payment is going to come later on. And I, so all things present, I can live in the victory that Jesus already has given me in himself, but then also live in the promise of what is to come. That's, that's God's word. That's his mind. That's his understanding. In 1 Corinthians 13 and verse 12, it says, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, just as I also have been fully known. So truly what he says is, all things belong to Christ, but in him all things belong to us. Now, what is the key to this whole thing, though? What has Paul been saying for three chapters? Stop listening to the wisdom of men. Look back in chapter 2 in the last verse, and I think this is the key to understanding why we can, under, we can realize all things belong to us. The last verse in chapter 2, verse 16. For who has known the mind of the Lord that he should instruct him? But we have the what? The mind of Christ. Whoa, man. You say, wait, I don't have the mind of Christ. You do if the Holy Spirit of God lives in you. Well, how come it's not functioning? Because you're not living according to the word of God. You're living like the church of Corinth. You're living according to the word of, of men and the world's ways. You're not living up under the word of God. You're not attached to Christ by being attached to his word, by living by faith. And if you'll do that, he renews your mind. And you begin to see as he sees and thinks as he thinks. And then you can understand why all things belong to us because we're in him and he belongs to God. That's the bottom line of everything he's been saying. Stop attaching yourselves to men. Stop parading men's wisdom and, and all these things around. You attach yourself to Christ. Live faithfully to his word. And then let him renew your mind. And then live in light of that which he offers to you. Do you want the cow or would you rather have the farm? That's the bottom line. I mean, good night. Why would you attach yourself to the vessel when you can attach yourself to Christ and live in the fullness of what he offers? Well, in chapter 4, it comes right back to the same argument. The basic line is get up under Christ, get in his word. And then Paul says something. People are still evaluating preachers. You know, they still do it today in the 20th century. They, they were doing it back then. They're doing it today. I'll tell you how they do it today. They evaluate preachers based on the kind of preacher of the church they came from or the preacher who used to be there. That's one of the ways they evaluate preachers. They evaluate preachers on how well he visits of whether or not they really think he cares about them because he's always there when they need him in a physical way. They evaluate preachers sometimes because of personality. They evaluate preachers sometimes because of administrative abilities. It was going on in Paul's day, and it's going on in our day. Now, what Paul is going to do is this right here. He's saying, now listen to me. You want to regard a preacher? You want to esteem a preacher? 
then there's some guidelines for you that you're going to have to follow. If you're going to regard me, he's saying, or if you're going to regard Apollos, this is the format you're going to have to use. These are the marks of a God-called preacher. And he says it so clearly in verses 1 through 5 of chapter 4. Let's get into it and just see what we can find. You know, there's a magazine put out somewhere, and I, I know the name of it, but I won't tell you, but there's a magazine, and every year or so, they'll put out the top 10 preachers in, in America. <laughs> and number one, I know I'll never make that list, but you pray that I will never make that list. I won't because of ability, but I also don't want to because of any other reason. What in the world would any preacher who loves God want to be on a secular magazine's acclamation of the top 10 preachers in a year? What in the world does the world know about preaching? That was the problem in Corinth. They were using the world's standards to judge preachers. And Paul said, whoa now, whoa. You're going to regard a preacher? You're going to esteem a preacher? This is the only way under God you can do it. Number one, the responsibility of a God-called preacher. Here it is. Paul says, test me in Apollos and make sure we meet this standard. Verse 1 of chapter 4. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Now that word let a man regard is the word logizome. Logizome, best four years of my life was first year math. You know, and you're standing at the board and you're trying to remember all the different things that help you solve a problem. <laughs> And I remember one day standing there at the board and the teacher was saying, come on, Wayne, come on, Wayne, come on, because <laughs> they wanted me to pass the course. They were tired of having me in the class. And I finally began to come to me. And the observations that they had told me to make began to make sense. And I started making the observations. And lo and behold, I came out with the right conclusion. That's logizome. Logizome means come to this conclusion by making these observations. Now, what observations? There are two of them there in that first verse. First of all, he says, regard us as servants of Christ. Make sure that if you're going to regard this preacher and call him a God-called preacher, you make sure he's a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the word for servant will surprise you. It's not the same word we've seen earlier in 1 Corinthians. The word diakonos, which means that menial servant, which we get the word deacon from, simply means if you have a glass of water and it's empty, can I go get you another glass of water? Is there anything I can do to serve you? That's a, that's a synonym for this word. But this word is, is sort of, it, it doesn't pop up very often in Scripture, and I think it's very important that we look at it. It's the word iperitis. Thank you, Wayne. Iper means under, and then it comes from the word eritis, which means the rower, now listen to me, the rower of a boat. Now what Paul just described here as a servant is a galley slave. A galley slave. It was one of the, the slaves that would get in the lower tier of a boat and would row the boat. The most menial, unenvied, and despised of all slaves. Now that's in its root form. That's in its secular form. The word came to mean one who is absolutely submissive to authority. Now that's the word for servant. Now the next thing you have to decide is whose authority is a preacher, God called preacher, submitted to? He's got to be absolutely submitted to it. Is it the church? Is it the deacons? Is it the elders? Who, who is he absolutely, what's the priority of this surrender and submission? He says, a servant of Christ. A preacher, first of all, is a servant of Christ. Is he called to serve men? Yes. But my friend, that's not what he's talking about right here. That comes later on in the book of 1 Corinthians. Don't start throwing all these things in. Stay with the context. 
The context is, first of all, the priority of his life, he's a servant of Christ. He must have the understanding that he cannot be a servant of Christ with one eye on him and one eye on the needs of man. And I'll tell you what I'm talking about here. If you're focused more on the needs of man than you are the leadership of the Holy Spirit of God in your life, what happens is you fail in both areas. Because what a preacher has done, if he, if he focuses only on the needs of man in the sense of I've got to go and meet those needs, what happens is he forfeits and compromises the very truth of God and then becomes a failure in all of those areas. Before the needs of man ever enter the picture, the preacher, first of all, is a servant of Christ. A galley slave. And as he says earlier in the book, we're equal. Don't you put one over another? We're just all gifted men that God has given to the body is what he's saying. Look in Acts 13, verse 36. I want you to see how David saw himself. Acts 13, verse 36. That word, eperitis, is the word used here. And I want you to understand who David was, the great leader, the king of Israel. And you mentioned David or Abraham's name to a Jew and they, and they opened their eyes very wide because these are heroes to them. But look how David considered himself. And this is so important. It says in verse 36 of Acts chapter 13, it says, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep. After he had served the purpose of God in his generation and the word served, Eperitus. He served as a man no more worthy than any others who are serving. And so that's the bottom line of what Paul is talking about. And when you're a servant of Christ, you don't look at yourself as somebody bigger or littler than somebody else. You just look at him and you walk and follow him. Look back in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 5 and 7, just to make sure we've got the thought now that he has. And this is exactly what he's bringing. I think that's why he uses the word. In 1 Corinthians 3 and verse 5, he says, what then is Apollos and what is Paul? Servants through whom you believe. Now there's the word diakonos. And he says, even as the Lord gave opportunity to each one. And then in verse 7 of 1 Corinthians 3, so then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but God causes the growth. Now the question has got to come in your mind and my mind. If he serves Christ, how does he serve Christ? A true God-called preacher is a man, when he serves Christ, serves his word. That's the bottom line. He serves his word. The word eparitus is used in that form in Luke chapter 1 and verse 2. The apostle Luke is talking, boy, it's so crystal clear when it comes out. It says, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. In other words, the picture here is of one who is a servant of Christ, who takes the word of God and hands it to others. And that's the bottom line of how a God-called preacher serves Christ. He serves his word. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 16, For if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I am under compulsion. Oh, I love that phrase there. Something's burning in my heart. This is what motivates me. For woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. Be very careful. Some people think the gospel is just the message of salvation. The gospel is the good news of the word of God, the good news of Jesus from Genesis 1 to the last chapter of Revelation. That's why in Romans 1, Paul says, I can't wait to get among you believers to preach to you the gospel. <laughs> I thought they only needed it if there's lost. No, no, you need it all the way through. It's the word of God. And the true God-called preacher is one who's a servant of Christ and the way he serves him is by serving his word. 
You know what a shepherd does? A shepherd does three things. He guides the sheep, he guards the sheep, he grazes the sheep. How does he do that? He guides them with the word, he guards them with the word, and he grazes them with the word. The word, the word, the word, the word, the word, the word. That's what a God-called preacher is compelled to do. He serves Christ by serving his word. You say, Wayne, you're just reading that into it. No, finish the verse. He said, we are stewards of the, manif- of the, of the, stewards of the mysteries of God. It's hard to say the manifold mysteries of God. It's called that in Ephesians 3.10. But the mysteries of God. Now, what is he talking about here? The word for steward is the word economos. <laughs> it's the word that means a household manager of somebody else's property. Uh, you, can, you can be a, a manager of, of a business if it's not yours. It can be an administrator of a domestic affair. It can be an administrator of whatever. But it's somebody who administrates and properly protects and distributes that which is the property of somebody else. He said, I'm a steward of the, of the mysteries of God. That not, that not a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. And that word mystery, as we've already seen in, in, in 1 Corinthians, means that which can be known only by revelation. He speaks here of the word of God. So what is a God-called preacher? A God-called preacher is under the authority of Jesus Christ, must be absolutely submissive to him, never look at himself as if he's above anybody else, but he serves the word of God. That's what he is, a steward of the mysteries of God. He, has, he holds nothing back. It's the whole counsel of God that he's committed to preach to people. That's what he's here for. That's what he does. You want to regard a preacher? Look first of all at his responsibility before God, and that is to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Paul told the Ephesian elders, if you want to turn in Acts chapter 20, verse 20. Acts 20 and verse 20. He's speaking to the church elders of his own island of Miletus. They've come down to him. And look what he says to them. And it's so important that we hear this. He says, I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable. That's so important. I left nothing out. He says, and teaching you publicly from house to house. They had house churches until way after the 8th century. And so therefore he'd go from one house church to another house church to another house church. And verse 21 says, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And then if you drop down to verse 27 there of chapter 20, he says, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. The apostle Paul was accountable, obedient to Christ and accountable to him to be a steward of the mysteries of God. Have you ever noticed how wrong doctrine gets its, its start because people are not preaching the whole counsel of God's word? It, wrong doctrine will come from people who major in the Old Testament uh, now, you've got to teach the Old Testament. And the Gospels in the book of Acts. But they will not get into the epistles at all. They never talk about the epistles. And when, that's where wrong doctrine festers when you're not teaching the whole counsel of it. The Apostle Paul says, man, I'm under compulsion to preach the whole counsel of God unto you. Listen again. Look back in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians. We've studied it, but let's look back. I've kind of got a lot to say, and so I may be hurrying beyond you this morning. I'm listening to your turn, so I'm going to let you finish get there. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. He says in verse 2 of 1 Corinthians 2, now listen to his heart. Listen to his heart. 
And what he's saying to them is, don't attach yourself to me. However, if you want to regard us or esteem us, you remember, here are your guidelines. Number one, our responsibility. He says in verse two, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. Paul knew the responsibility God had given to him. Verse four, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the power of the Spirit and of power. Then verse 5, why, why, why? Here's the compelling thing of a, of a true God-called preacher, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. So the responsibility and the major concern of a, a true God-called preacher is he's never there, now listen, to please his hearers. He is there to preach Thus saith the Lord. That's his responsibility before God. And that's what he'll answer to God one day for. Paul begins by showing them this. You know, it took me a long time to understand this. The average pastor in America today, they tell me, is dismissed after about eight months. About the longevity is about eight months now. It used to be up in two years. Then it came down to one and a half to one. It's somewhere getting down below one now, somewhere around the area of eight months. The last thing I heard. Why is that? You know, I don't know all the answers, but I think I know some. From this passage, I think what happens is congregations put a pressure on many preachers and do not allow them to fulfill his God-given responsibility. They want him here, 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 over here, do this, do that, do this, do that, and then come in on Sunday and expect to be fed without any comprehension of the time that it takes to get down and dig out the revealed mysteries of God in the Scriptures. And as a result of that, preachers end up being a failure to their congregation and a failure to God and a failure to themselves because they're, they're cutting off the very thing that is the answer everybody's looking for. Roy Hessian taught me a lot. Now, when I say Roy, I don't mean that Roy taught me everything. He opened the door, and many people have been added to the list since Roy. That's why I always go back to him. He was the one that God used to get my mind back on track. And I remember beating myself to death trying to meet everybody's need and then standing up in the pulpit on Sunday morning having to have bar somebody else's outline. <laughs> you ever done, any of y'all ever preached and done that? I mean, it's so weak. I mean, you can do it well, but there's no life in it at all. And Roy Hessian told me one day, I said, Roy, I'm worried. He said, what you worried about, son? I said, I'm worried about the fact that I come to church every Sunday and there are many people who never even bring their Bible. They sit there and they go half to sleep. They're looking at their watch halfway through the message. And I said, they just don't seem to be hungry at all. What do I do? What do I do about all those? And he said to me, Wayne, you're not responsible for people who will not eat. But you're responsible for setting the table for those who want to. And you won't stand before God and answer for people who didn't listen, but you will stand before God and answer for how you set the table. And that set me free. That set me free. Folks, I want to tell you, a God-called preacher knows that he's a servant to Christ. To serve him, he serves the Word. Now listen to me carefully. That's the way he loves the people. That's the way he serves the people is by being a steward of the mysteries of God. The very thing people don't want especially Corinthians who are still attached to people in the nursery. They don't want to hear from God. They'd rather man be there. They cling to man instead of clinging to God. But that's his God-given responsibility. Paul says, you want to esteem me and Apollos? Then this is my, our responsibility. Secondly, the requirement. 
of a preacher. That's very similar, but this is a requirement. There's one requirement. There's some responsibilities here in that requirement, but this is the requirement. The requirement of a preacher is found right here in verse 2. The word is used. It says, in this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. The present tense is used here for required, which means this is at all times. Now, you've got to find them this way. If you're going to esteem them, if you're going to regard them, here's the key. At all times. The verb required is the word that means that which is expected, that which is required. So there's something expected out of, of a person who's a God-called preacher. Not only does he have the responsibility of it being a, a servant and a steward, but he does have something else here that's required out of him. And the word for it's required that he be found trustworthy. The word trustworthy is the word pistos. It means to win over or to persuade. But now hang on, hang on. And it's somebody you can put your confidence in. That's what he's saying. But in the context here, there are many things that characterize being trustworthy and faithful. I mean, you can get into character and et cetera, and that all applies, but that's not his context. His context is directly linked to what he just said. Since this man's heart and his responsibility to serve the Lord by serving his word, be a steward of the mysteries of God, he must be found faithful at all times to be this, if you're ever going to put your confidence in him. That's what he's saying. Now, there are other things to being trustworthy, other things to being faithful. But his main emphasis here is not the wisdom of men, but the wisdom of God and why we don't attach ourselves to men. And if you're going to esteem a preacher, these are the things that have to be there. And a consistency about that fact. Whether there's 12 people there or 1,200 people there, they're always teaching the Word of God. They're stewards of the mystery of God. The word be found is the word herisco, and it means to discover by inquiry or experience. In other words, it's not almost, really, it's more than just asking somebody. It's something you've observed by being around that individual, whether it's just a few or whether it's a lot. You know, one of the things that's helped me in studying 2 Timothy is he said, I say this to you, Timothy, in the presence of God and the angels. And I'm thinking, wow. And I backed off of that and I said, you know, there's a bigger congregation than we can see, isn't there? There's, there are angels here this morning. Hey, guys. I mean, you can't see them, but they're here this morning. And, and not only that, when you preach, a preacher, a God-called preacher has to understand that he stands in the presence of God himself. And so, therefore, he's always to be found trustworthy and faithful to be consistent in teaching the Word of God, in revealing the mysteries of God. So, this is why Paul sent Timothy, by the way, to Corinth. You think Paul wasn't worried about Corinth? He was worried about the people that were deceiving them and beguiling them. And so, he sent Timothy. So, he would have to trust Timothy to be one who was faithful and trustworthy that he would preach the word of God to them. And that's what he says in chapter 4 and verse 17 about Timothy. Look down at verse 17 of chapter 4. <clears throat> he says in verse 17, For this reason I have sent to you, Timothy, who is my beloved and faithful child in the Lord. And he will remind you of my ways which are in Christ, just as I teach everywhere in every church. In other words, he's going to pick right up where I left off, and that's why I'm sending Timothy to you. You can trust him. He's always found to be consistent in teaching the Word of God. And I'll tell you what, folks, I have had to really pray about doing this message this morning because, matter of fact, my wife said to me before I left the house, she said, Wayne, your attitude in preaching is going to tell the story. Because, <laughs> folks, I've been on the other side of this coin. I know exactly what Paul is talking about of being judged as according to a pastor that somebody has had or somebody they've been experienced to. I've, I've been there. I've been there when a lady in the church, her husband died 
And I went over to see about the funeral and she told me at the door stand, she said, you've never loved my husband. You've never loved my husband. The pastor before you, he came to visit him every single day. You, you, you don't come that often. And she said, you've never loved him. And she said, you will not preach his funeral. They got a man to come in and pray this man out of purgatory the next day in our church. I mean, absolutely doctrinal. He had no doctrine whatsoever and made me say, I had to sit right there on my own auditorium and listen to that because somebody had evaluated me according to the standards of the world and not according to the standards of God. Had a little old shack out behind our house. Down there. We had a parsonage. <laughs> Diana, when she first, <laughs> I went down to see it. And I'm, I'm always real excited. Everything's good to me for some reason. And I came back and said, Diana, you'll love this parsonage. You'll love it. I said, it's a big old southern mansion. It's been, <laughs> Diana went down. She got in the back of the house and got away from the committee that was taking us through it. We got back there. She said, I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And this is a, it's an awkward time. When, you, when you've already accepted the call to the church, and they have a house for you. You don't get to buy your house. And your wife is crying in the back of the house saying, I hate it, I hate it, I hate it. And it took us a while to get over that. But one of the things she hated was there was so many windows in every room. I mean, I said, how many windows in every room? About 25 windows all the way around. And you think, how do you put curtains up? How do you do this? Big old, big old house. Steve wanted to get up at night to go to the bathroom. And when he did, you had to go catch him because you never knew where he ended up. And it was so big, we'd get lost in the house trying to find him. I mean, it's a big old house. But I had a little shack out behind it. That thing was dilapidated, had rats in it. I had no place to study. That's another thing that I think that's an indictment of, of us today where churches have offices but not study. I couldn't find a place to study, even at the church. But I saw that old shack out there and I got a friend of mine who loved the Word of God and I said, I said, Wenton, I said, can you help me? Can we, we do something with this old shack? He said, we sure can. Boy, it took him about two weeks. He was a precious man, loved God. Man, if he ever prays for me to die, I'm going to crawl in the box. And he fixed up this shack, I mean, this, this little house out there, made a little bedroom on one side because there was no motel. If we ever had speakers to come in, it was a place for them to stay. And then on the other side, fixed me up, even put me a radio connection because we was on radio there at the church. And everybody in, in the whole church started laughing at me. And they called and said, yeah, that's that preacher got that little shack out back. And they started laughing at me because the former preacher was out knocking on doors all day long. But I tried to spend my time alone with God in his word. And it made me a mockery in that town. I understand, folks, what Paul is trying to say here. But I also want you to understand what God says, no matter what you feel this morning. And God helped me now with my attitude. No matter what you feel, you better get your thoughts lined up with what God's Word says a preacher is. Get off this kick that because of tradition, you think you're supposed to be this or that. You better check in with God. And God says, you're a, you're a servant to me by serving my Word, by being a steward of the, of the mysteries of God. And not only that, every time you get in that pulpit, you have to be found consistent to that task, to preach the Word of God. And folks, this is an encouraging passage to me. <laughs> Might discourage you, but it sure is encouraging my heart. But the third thing about a preacher we want to see here is not just his responsibility and not just his requirement, but the third thing is his reward. The one thing he looks forward to, and, I, and this is so precious if I've got the time, I think I do, to do it. The reward of a God-called preacher. It's important to see faithfulness and, and all these things in a preacher's life, but the only examination that really matters to a God-called preacher should be not what the people think and not even what your own estimate is. 
It's what God thinks of what you're doing. That's the bottom line. And this, this really convicted me even as I was studying. Verse 3, he says, But to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or by any human court. Now, when he says a very small thing, it's an, it's an interesting word here. The word doesn't mean it means nothing. It just means it's minimal in importance compared to something else that I'm going to talk to you about. Certainly it's important for, to be examined by the people because there's accountability. But he says, that's minimal to me. That's minimal to something else. It's not as important. It is important, but it's not as important. The word examine, anacrino, which means to judge, to discern. He says, or by any human court. And the word, that's the way it's translated. But the phrase is not that. The word himera is used. And the idea is this. Humera means on any given day, on any specific day. And Paul says, listen, you can examine me on any specific day you choose. And that examination is important and you, you need to do that. But that's not what I rest my life on. Not what you think of me. I rest my life on what God thinks of me. In fact, he didn't even examine himself to rest upon his findings. Now, obviously, he did examine himself, but not in light of this being the important thing that motivated his life. Look at verse 3 again. But to me, it's a very small thing that I should be examined by you or any human court. In fact, I do not even examine myself. Present tense. In other words, yes, I'm always checking on things, but I'm not letting that become my, my basis for how I think about myself. The real test is God's test in verse 4. For I am conscious of nothing against myself. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I love the way he did that. If you ask me to examine myself right now, I'm not conscious of anything about myself. <laughs> Isn't it funny how we can deceive ourselves and be deceived by what others tell us? Oh, Brother Wayne, that was the greatest message I've ever heard. And I want to tell you, I enjoy those kind of things. <laughs> I really do. But, but it's like the Apostle Paul is saying, you better be careful, big boy. Don't you judge yourself by what they say. And don't you judge yourself by what you come up with either. You better judge it by what I think about what you said. And he goes on to say, he says, For I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. What does it mean to be by this acquitted? <laughs> Let me see if I can teach you this. The word acquitted there is not the word that means declared righteous or made, made righteous. No, it's not. It's another word. It's the kaio, D-I-K-A-I-O-O. They're o-o verbs. You say, thanks, Wayne. Boy, it really blesses my heart. But it should. The kaio. When, the, when an uh-oh verb is used, I call them the uh-oh verb. When the uh-oh verb is used, it means not just that you're made righteous. That's not what he's saying. He means you are proven and put on display as being righteous. Let me show you that in James chapter 2 because this is important if you've never understood this. James chapter 2 and verse 21. You know, Martin Luther said the book of James is a pistol of straw. Throw it out. I mean, that's one of the greatest books in the New Testament. Why did he say that? Because of this verse. But if he'd understood the uh-ohs, <laughs> It wouldn't have been as difficult. Simple as the nose on your face if you understand it. James chapter 2 and verse 21. James chapter 2 verse 21. He says, was not Abraham our father? Now listen to this. Justified by works? <laughs> Somebody stands up and says, what heretic? Throw him out. We're saved by grace, by faith, less, that, not less, that any man should not boast. Paul said that. James is contradicting that. He says Abraham was justified by his works. No, no, no. He was shown to be justified by his works. That's an uh-oh verb. That's what he's talking about. 
He was proven to be justified. So the idea that Paul is using that word here in chapter 4, he says, listen, you can't, you can't acquit me. I mean, you can't make me be proven that I'm righteous. God has got to prove me. And that's what I want. I don't want men to prove me. I can't prove myself. I want to be under God's approval. That he proves to the people that what I'm doing is of him. That's the bottom line. It's not how the people think about it. It's not how you think about it. It's how does God think about it. And he wants God's approval. He wants God to put him on display. And then that anointing power of God sets in on it. And the tension then immediately goes to God and not to the person. It's like the psalmist who said, David, David, I love David. And David said in Psalm 139, he said, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou hast searched me and known me. And then he says in the last two verses, he says, Search me again, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. God, you've already searched me. God, I've searched myself. But God, would you search me again? Let's make sure that you approve. Because I don't want to do it if your approval is not upon me. That's what the God-called preacher wants more than anything else in the world. Just that God's hand is on him. That God's approval is there. That he has put him on display as being one of his. Called and assigned to do what he has told him to do. Well, in verse 5, and I'm going to quit. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment before the time. <laughs> in other words, stop trying to go around judging preachers' motives, etc. Oh, yes. Be discerning. Mark those who cause division. Check wrong doctrine. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, listen, be careful when you start getting down to this judgment of people's hearts and motives. If they're God called, leave it alone. Because one day there's going to be a judgment and God will take care of all that. There's more to be said. I'll pick that up about on that verse tonight because I'm just hitting it real quickly. My time is gone. Let me share this with you, though. i tell you how encouraging this verse has been to me. I'll tell you another story of what happened. And I have had to really pray that I tell it right. <laughs> and I don't make them look bad and me look good. But there was another lady that I went to visit, her husband, who had had a stroke. The interesting thing is he loved me to death and I loved him. He would have, the preacher before me went every day, but I, I didn't go every day. But every time I went, boy, God would just bless those times. And I went to see him when he had a stroke in the hospital. And when she saw me walk down the hall, she slammed the door of the room of intensive care and stood in front of it and said, you will never go in this room because you have never loved my husband and began to scream at me in the hall of a hospital in a public place. And I thought to myself, the times that I had spent on my face before God praying over that church and over that man and over that woman, that when I stood in the pulpit, I could be a steward of the Word of God, loving those people the way God had gifted me to love them, and then for her to make her evaluation of me based on what she thought I ought to be, not based on what God says I'm responsible to be. Folks, if you want to regard a preacher, there's a responsibility that God has for him, a requirement, and a reward 
and you pick those three, make those observations, and come to your conclusions. Bottom line.